It's good to see you all here. As always, we have a pretty fair amount to cover. So we're going to go ahead and get started so that we can get, uh, get done before like 1 o'clock. So let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do come before you, and it is our heartfelt desire to worship you this morning by hearing you speak through your word through the prophet Isaiah. Lord, we know that all scripture is inspired by you and is profitable. So as we open the word today, we do it as an act of worship. We want to hear our master speak. And as your slaves, we want to bow in humble adoration and obey. So Holy Spirit, move amongst us, illumine the word to us, and give us a heart to understand and to obey. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't know about you guys, but it seems to me the book is sort of coming to an exciting climax. We only have seven chapters after today, only six chapters left to go. So we're working our way through this. I think we'll probably be done end of March-ish. Okay, sometime around there. And uh, we're starting to work through what we're going to do after that. I'm not 100% sure, but it's probably either going to be a series on how do we respond to the culture around us or what is a real church, right? So we'll probably do both of those. I'm just not sure what we're going to do next. So if you have any thoughts, come see me. But today... We're going to spend our time in a really exciting chapter, Isaiah 59. Now, I'm being a little bit disingenuous because they've all been exciting chapters, right? Every single chapter in this book has been packed with relevant, applicable information, applicable words from our Creator. And we're going to see that today in chapter 59. We're going to see a couple of things. First of all, we're going to see the sinfulness of sin, right? We need to understand that God really does hate sin. God does not tolerate sin. And there's a principle of sin we're going to see here. And that principle is that whether you are a believer or not, sin impacts your relationship with God. Now it doesn't differently if you're an unbeliever than a believer, but sin impacts your fellowship with God. Isaiah is going to show us that the consequence of unrepentant sin and ultimately that will lead us to the need for a redeemer. Isaiah 57:17 says this, because of the iniquity of his greedy gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry. He went on turning away in the way of his heart. Ezekiel says this in chapter 39, verse 24. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them 
and I hid my face from them. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we understand that as a believer, sin does not result in our ultimate judgment and condemnation because that sin was already paid for in the cross. But it does impact the intimacy of our fellowship with the Father. And we'll see that. Secondly, we're going to see that sin shows us the need for a Redeemer. Israel, despite their religious and their rituals, their religious efforts, could not atone for their own sin. They thought they could atone for their sin through the works of the law and their own self-righteousness. They believed this. Even though they were rebelling against the law that God gave them, they thought that they had a special relationship and basically God would overlook all this. But Jesus said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, Jesus points out, look, you can do all these little ridiculous things. You can tithe your mint and dill, but your heart is not to be obedient to Yahweh, right? And there's a consequence for that. And then I just want to kind of point out what I call the universal. Actually, I got this phrase from MacArthur. While addressing Israel through Isaiah, the principles presented here apply not only them, but to the church and to us. He's going to address specific sins Israel committed, but that does not mean that God ignores sin in the life of the church or in the life of a believer. Now, let me repeat again. The consequences may be different, but we just learned last week with respect to parenting that what does the Father do to all those whom He loves? He disciplines them, right? He disciplines them. He will deal with the sin of a believer. Now, it's not, it's not that He's going to send you to hell forever, but He is going to discipline you. He is going to deal with the sin. And oh, by the way, we know from 1 Corinthians 11s that may be He may just take you out. He may make you sleep. He may kill you. So let's get to verses 1 through 8, and it's Israel's need to repent. This is an incredible passage. These first eight verses, you'll notice Israel is saying, God, are you hearing us? Are you listening? This is the question they were asking. They felt like God did not hear them or was unable to hear them. But that's not the issue. The issue was their sin and how it affected their fellowship with Yahweh, right? But they think God doesn't or can't listen to them. Listen to the verse 1 and 2. Behold, the hand of Yahweh is not so short that he cannot save, nor his ear so dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities 
have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So the first question we want to ask is, does God hear? That's the thing. He, he says, look, you, you think my hand is so short and my ears don't hear. He's answering their question. And Israel thought that they were righteous because they had the covenants and because they had their religious ritual and they could not understand why God wasn't doing what they wanted. They could not understand why they were in judgment. To them, it appears God just cannot hear them. He's unable. Jeremiah 32, verse 17 comments on this when he says, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult to, for you. So is the issue Yahweh can't hear? No. Psalm 44, verse 21. Would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. If he knows the secrets of the heart, he probably knows what you're saying. Psalm 69, verse 5 says, O oh God, it is you who knows my folly, and all my guilt is not hidden from you. God knows. And let's be honest, right? All of us at times have wondered when we pray, like, is God listening? I don't think we wonder whether God can hear, but we wonder, is God listening to us? What's the answer to that question? Of course he is. Does he hear the prayers of his people? Of course he does. Right? Doesn't mean he does what we want in our timing, but he does hear, and he is going to work out his sovereign purposes, right? So what we see here is it's not God's inability to hear, it's our sin. Right? And I want to look at both how this affected Israel and does it affect us. Look at Psalm 32. And we're going to look at this later, but this is a great psalm. Psalm 32, there are two psalms that talk about David's repentance over his sin with Bathsheba. What is the most well-known one of those? Isaiah 51. It is the great psalm of repentance. If you want to know what real repentance looks like, read Psalm 51. But there's another psalm that also talks about this, and it's Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, unlike Psalm 51, Psalm 51 gives us a picture of David's repentance. Psalm 32 gives us a picture of of what David was going through before he repented. Listen to verse, starting in verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, in other words, before I confessed my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgression to Yahweh, 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What he's saying is, look, before I repented, life was miserable. I felt like I didn't have any fluids left, like I was drying up. Your hand was upon me. I'm groaning all day long. Does that sound like the joy of salvation? I don't think so. In Psalm 51 says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Why? Because he was missing it. He didn't feel like a believer. He was groaning. And then he says, and then I confess my sin and you forgave it. So that's what David looked like when he was an unrepentant believer. Jeremiah 5 says this in verse 24. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear Yahweh our God, who gives rain in its seasons, both the early rain and the late rain, who keeps us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquity have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. In other words, what God is saying to Israel, it's not that I can't hear you, but until you repent from your sins, you're going to feel my judgment. Right? And that's exactly what's going on. Oh, by the way, in 1 John 1, 9, how many of you have that verse memorized? The rest of you need to repent. Okay? Get your Bible highlighters out. Highlight this verse if you haven't. Think of next week I'm going to bring some Bible highlighters and I'll pass them out. Ah, there, look, somebody's highlighting. Good job. Well done. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's the key when we think about First John 1 John 1.9. Are your sins already forgiven if you're a believer? All of them? Are you sure? Absolutely positive. Okay, good answer. But you'll notice John says, look, if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us our sins, and he'll cleanse us from this unrighteousness. In other words, the unrighteousness that interferes with our fellowship with God will be removed. Right? If we're honest, if you are in a period of unrepentant sin, how is your fellowship with God? Not so hot. How's your time in the Word? Not so hot, right? We read the Word, but we know we're like David, man. I groan all day long. I feel like, you know, God's hand is heavy upon me because we have not confessed our sin to Him and repented, right? And eventually God will discipline you for that. God will deal with it. Israel was the problem. God does not just leave them by accusing them of iniquity. He gets very specific about their sins and their unrepentant hearts. We're going to see that in verses 3 through 8. He is going to give us a detailed description of the kind of depraved behavior that typifies Israel in the time of Isaiah. He's going to show us what depraved people look like. And I will tell you, when we go through this list, you might wonder, is he talking about Israel 2,700 years ago? Or is he talking about San Antonio today? 
I don't know, except for the fact that it says he's talking about Israel. But I, I want you to listen to this, okay? I want you to listen and pay attention to what he says here, starting in verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken a lie. Your tongue mutters unrighteousness. No one calls in righteousness, and no one seeks justice and truth. They trust in confusion and speak worthlessness. Huh. They conceive trouble and give birth to wickedness. They break open viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. <coughs> their web will not become a garment, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of wickedness, and a deed of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are quick to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of wickedness, devastation, and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. <coughs> now that may appear at first to be a wee bit confusing, but it's actually pretty straightforward. And when you look at the original language, when we look at this, I'm going to ask you to honestly assess whether this defines our culture or not. See, Israel is not unique in the history of the world. They're not the first sinners in the history of the world. So I want you to look at verse 3, and it talks about their bodies as instruments of sin. They're using their bodies, which were created for what purpose? What's, your, what, what's the purpose? To glorify God. What are they doing with their bodies? Well, first of all, their hands are defiled with blood. They're killers. They're murderers. They're it says their fingers with iniquity. They use their hands, their gifts, to commit sin. Notice it says their lips do what? Speak lies. And their tongue speaks unrighteousness. In other words, their tongue is always talking about how they can do their things which are absolutely against God's will because God is a God of what? Righteousness. In other words, everything they speak in their tongue is opposed to the will of God. Look at verse 4 and notice their greedy oppression. This is really interesting. It says, first of all, no one calls righteousness. No one. He looks over the society and he doesn't see anybody who is looking for righteousness, holiness, being pleasing to God. No one seeks justice in truth. The idea here is they, they pervert justice. They come up with their own definition of justice. 
does that sound familiar? But it's a lie. You know, one of the things that just angers me every time I hear it is we have now rebranded abortion as reproductive justice, reproductive freedom. Not for the kid you're killing, I'll tell you that, right? And their speech, listen to this, is deceiving and worthless, right? I mean, it was going on 2,700 years ago. We're just getting better at it. Their speech, and I'm not sure, but I think the Hebrew word means Facebook and Twitter and X. Maybe not. I don't know. But it says their speech is deceiving. It's deceptive. And it's totally worthless. They don't even know how to speak the truth anymore. Everything they say is designed to deceive people. And then I want you to notice the next phrase. It says they conceive trouble and wickedness. I had to spend some time looking at this. So the word they conceive in the original means to have an idea for and it's the same word that we use when we talk about conceiving a child, right? This isn't something little. They're spending time on this, right? They want to conceive trouble. The word for trouble can mean anxiety. It can mean harm or it can just mean trouble, right? They want to disrupt the culture. They want to disrupt the things of God for their own wicked pleasures. And it says, and wickedness, which means morally object objectionable behavior, or it could be translated disaster. Now, he's not talking about an earthquake. He's talking about spiritual disaster here. It can mean wickedness. It can mean fraud. It's a very broad term. That's what they're conceiving, they're focused on in their minds. It's what they speak about, it's what their lips talk about, and it's what their hearts are trying to do. And now God, it's interesting, God is going to illustrate their wickedness with two examples from nature. He's going to give us two examples of their wickedness from nature. Notice the first one talks about viper eggs. This is probably not my wife's favorite text because my wife doesn't like snakes. It conveys the idea that the apostate people were like poisonous serpents that produce evil influences calculated to destroy the unwary and those who aren't paying attention. They're like a snake and they're... Their eggs, they're trying to hatch more eggs because they want to destroy people like a viper. And then it talks about spider webs. Now, I'll tell you, when I first webbed that, I'm kind of scratching my head. But when you look at it and study it a little bit, it becomes pretty clear. Spiders weave these delicate webs. But he says, you're not making clothes from those. Why does a spider weave a web? Does he do it to make clothes for you or something like that? No, why does a spider weave a web? To catch his prey and to kill it. And he says, that's what you're like. You're weaving spider webs, not to do anything productive with them. 
You're not going to wear them. You're going to catch your prey and you're going to destroy them. It's a people who produce nothing but poison and death. Instead of weaving something that can be a blessing, their weaving produces nothing but iniquity, trouble, sorrow, and violence. Micah 2.1 says this, describing the same thing. Woe to those who devise wickedness, who work out evil in their beds. When the light of morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. He says at night they're just thinking up more wicked things they can do. They get up in the morning and they do it. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. And although they know the righteousness requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Right? This is what the character of God's holy people is when Isaiah writes this. Right? See, let's go back to the beginning. God, why are you not hearing us? Are you deaf? You got short hands or something here, God? What's going on? And God says, well, it's your iniquity. And now God has made it very clear the details of their iniquity. They're not just, you know, oh, you missed Sabbath uh, the other day and... Uh, you know, that lamb you gave me, it was a little blemish. You maybe didn't see it, but it was. That's not what he's talking about here. What is the character of their hearts? The character of their heart is constant unrighteousness and wickedness, which results in bloodshed, injustice, murder, and all these other things that he's talking about. It results in you being a viper, and a spider who just wants to trap innocent people so that you can kill them. That's the character of them. And by the way, that is the character of our culture today. Is it not? Let's not just look at Israel 2,700 years ago. Look around you. You know, one of the things that ought to grieve every single one of you is the fact that since basically Roe v. Wade, depending on the numbers you read, but we've killed like uh, 68 million children. Talk about hands dripping with blood, right? And we don't go to some god mullet. We sacrifice it over the god of convenience and comfort, right? Kids can be very inconvenient. You know, I think I'll just kill it. And when he talks about how their words are deceptive, right? How they, it, it talks about the idea they change them again. How do we now, how do we frame abortion? Oh, it's a woman's reproductive freedom. Who's against freedom? None of us are against freedom. That's not what it is. It's not freedom for the child you're killing, it's murder. We need to speak the truth. We need to stand up in our generation, just like Isaiah stood up in his, and we need to speak the truth. And by the way, it did not make Isaiah popular. Okay? He did not win, and in the polls, when they did the, you know, uh, Israel News Network polls, 
Isaiah's approval rating was like 12%, right? He, he wasn't real popular because what's he doing? He's pointing out their sin to them and they don't like it. More than that, he's pointing out the judgment of God on them and they really don't like that, right? But there will come a dime when Israel realizes its desperate situation. So what's going on, by the way? Let's go back historically. When Isaiah writes this, where's Israel? He's talking about their captivity in Babylon, right? Now remember, big picture. Isaiah is talking about the future captivity in Babylon. It's going to happen, Israel. You're not going to like it. You're going to, you're going to be taken over by Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet says, oh, it's here. Here he comes. He's at the door, by the way. Oops, you better do what he says, right? Isaiah's the prophet when it happens. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Jeremiah's the prophet when it happens. Isaiah's the prophet saying, look, it's coming. Got about 100 years, right? Look at verses 9 through 11. And, and I want you to look at how the, the, the pronouns have changed. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but behold, we walk in thick darkness. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears. We moan steadily like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. You see the desperation here? Israel looks at their situation, and what do they see? They see desperation. Let's break this down a little. Look at verse 9. They seek light. Who wouldn't? But what do they get? Darkness. They're like, God, bring your light. We're a nation in darkness. Israel wanted God to come down and save them from their oppressors, to bring them to justice and righteousness. But because of their sin... They're consigned to darkness, to gloom, to exile and captivity. That's where they're at. Zephaniah says this in chapter 1, verse 15. A day of fury is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom. Now what day is Zephaniah talking about? talking about the day of the Lord, right? This is future judgment coming. But I want you to notice how he describes it. He describes it as darkness. Now, during the tribulation, there will be actual physical darkness. There will be periods of actual physical darkness. By the way, in history, have we ever seen that before? Has God ever done that in the past? When did he do that? Okay, did it at the crucifixion? When else did he do it? In Israel's history, like back in Egypt. Remember, one of the plagues, darkness. Yeah, there you go. Darkness symbolically 
and actually represent God's judgment. Because God is what? Jesus describes himself as what? So darkness is the absence of what? God's presence, God's influence. Jeremiah 13, verse 16 says, Give glory to Yahweh our God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into shadow of death and turns it into dense gloom. Well, that's not good, right? And one of the things I want you to notice here, and I've said this lots of times, but one of the objectives of this whole study is to help you see the consistency throughout all of Scripture. The reason I bring in these other verses, besides to illustrate the point, is to show you that God's redeeming plan is, is, the, is the Bible, right? It's in all the books, right? If you were to describe, and I'm, I'm going down a rabbit hole for just a minute here. If you were trying to describe the Bible in one phrase, what would you say? There you go. You get extra donuts and, and extra coffee. Listen, the Bible from Genesis to the end of Revelation is nothing more than this. It is God's revelation of himself and his redemptive plan from eternity past to eternity future. That's all it is. There are 66 books in here, and we tend to look at these as different books. They're not. Look at them as chapters of the same book. Right? So we have chapters and chapters, but you get the point. Right? All of this book simply is God revealed himself and his redemptive plan from eternity past to eternity future. Right? That's what's going on in this book. And that's why we look at a lot of these verses, because I want you to see it. So you'd think maybe I'd introduce a New Testament verse. Okay. Look at Romans 1, starting in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. In other words, darkness. Spiritual darkness. You'll notice that phrase, unfit minds, means unable to be in touch with morality. They are totally out of touch with morality. They're in utter darkness. And then I want you to notice verse 10. God says you're blind. Actually, they say we're blind. The best a blind man is able to do is grope along a wall in the darkness. 
Blind men feel the wall, they feel things, they seek their way around to escape from prison. So men in their sins grope about seeking deliverance and never finding it. They're seeking deliverance, they're groping around in the dark, and they're not finding it. See, these aren't people whose vision is impaired a little bit. These are people who, when they're totally blind, it's just darkness. That's how they're described. Moses talks about it in Deuteronomy 28, verse 29, and you will grope at noon, predicting their future, knowing what they're going to do. You will grope as noon as a blind man gropes in darkness. And you will not succeed in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed all your days, and none to save you. No man is going to save you. No leader is going to save you. No person is going to save you. You're going to grope in the darkness. Isaiah 29, we read this half a year ago. 29 verse 9, astonish yourself. Listen to this. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. They became drunk, but not with wine. They staggered, but not with strong drink. Their sin, they are blinding themselves. That's God's condemnation here. You know, Jesus commenting on them and the Pharisees and the leadership said this, Leave them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. That's what Jesus says. Look, it's a bunch of blind men walking around in the darkness leading other blind men. And how's that going to turn out? Not so hot. And then I want you to notice in verse 11, they groan in agony. Because of their sin, they could only moan because they found no salvation in their ritual. Remember the last chapter? They're doing all this, their Sabbaths, their fasts, and God says, I don't even like those. They're looking for deliverance in it. They're not finding in it. As a result, they just moan. The idea here is somebody just suffering in agony, and they're just moaning. It's pitiful, right? I mean, you see somebody like that, you feel pity for them. Isaiah 38, 14, like a swallow, like a crane, so I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. You know, my wife likes to have bird feeders and stuff out back, and, and we have all these doves come. And in the morning, you can hear them making their dove noise, right? Now, I don't know if the doves in Israel sound like the doves in shirts, but they make this. I mean, how many of you heard that, right? You all heard that, right? Raise your hand. Come on. Ooh, yeah. Okay. There you go. Awesome. But it's like, it's like the moaning. They're hungry. They're pitiful. That's what he's describing here. So let's look in verses 12 through 15 at the reason for their desperation. Why are they in this condition? Why are they in darkness? Why are they groping around like blind men? Why are they moaning, pitifully moaning? Well, it says this starting in verse 12. 
for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins answer against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgression and denying Yahweh and turning back from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and the righteous stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the streets, and righteous, uh, rightness cannot enter. So it is that truth is missing, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself plunder. Then Yahweh saw, and it was evil in his eyes, and there was no justice. Now I want you to understand the big picture here, what's happening. Earlier in the chapter, right, God says, no, the reason I am not answering you is because of your iniquity. And then what does God do? He describes their iniquity. They're like vipers. They're like spiders. Talks about how their hands and their body parts are just doing sin in their words. But what we're seeing now, as we just saw earlier, because of this, Israel's moaning. They're in darkness. They're blind. And they realize it. And now they realize they are hopeless. They are hopeless. Because what they're doing now, it's Israel talking, and they say, for our transgression, who's the are there? Who's the person who's speaking? Figuratively, Israel. Israel's talking. So God condemns them, and they go, you know what? Exactly. They realize that the reason for their desperation we saw earlier is their transgression. Israel knows their sin. There are six things, sins that follow all four. So if we look in the original language here, it's a form of a Hebrew infinitive absolute that emphasizing the never-ending nature of Israel's sin. In the original language, it emphasizes the fact that these are never-ending sins. They just keep doing them. Because there is no truth or uprightness, salvation remains far away. Their rituals aren't going to help them. They see their own sin, and they realize in their desperation that their condition on their own is never going to improve. Let's look at the sins they acknowledge. The first one is transgressing and denying Yahweh. Those are put together. They're, they're sinning, they're transgressing, and they're denying what Yahweh has clearly spoke to them, and they know it. See, this isn't a, oh, I accidentally walked on the grave of somebody and didn't realize it. They know what they're doing. They are denying Yahweh. By the way, remember that passage we just read in Romans? Right? Even though God made himself plain, what do they do? They deny him. They deny him. And then it says they're turning back from our God. Instead of going to God, what are they doing? 
they're walking away from him. Instead of seeking him, they're turning their back to him. Picture a, a situation with your wife where there's a, maybe a little disagreement, and instead of trying to reconcile and, and be loving, you turn your back and you walk away. You don't hear. I don't care. That's what they're doing to God. Notice the third thing is they speak oppression and revolt. Interesting words. Oppression means they're oppressing their fellow Jews, taking advantage of, they're taking advantage of the poor, the widow, the helpless. Jesus talks about that, by the way. We're going to see that in Isaiah 61 here, so just wait two more weeks. But they also speaking revolt. Who are they revolting against? Yahweh. Yahweh. They're not just not obeying him. They're actively rebelling against him. They're shaking their fists in his face. That's what they're doing. Which, by the way, is exactly what's going on in our culture, is it not? We don't just sin. We revel in our sin. We take pride in it. In fact, we revolt so much, we have parades to celebrate our sin. And you get condemned, by the way, if you don't go to those parades. Which, by the way, don't go to those parades. And notice, they're conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. The phrase uttering from their hearts, the idea here is they know it. They're not making mistakes. Oh, you know, three and three is seven. Oh, I made a mistake. They know in their hearts. And the idea of conceiving here, again, go back to what we talked about earlier. They're pondering, they're planning, right? They're working on it. And then notice that justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. The idea of justice and righteousness, absolutely foreign to them. They don't care. You're suffering and I'm oppressing the poor. They don't care. And then the last one, I love the way it says this, for truth is stumbled in the street and righteousness cannot enter so that truth is missing. The idea here is, is there can be no righteousness because there's no truth. And what is truth? It's the words of Yahweh, which, oh, by the way, they had. Isaiah speaking them to them. The very words of Yahweh. And it says truth is missing. It's just not there. There is no truth. I would say if anything cult, you know, characterizes our culture, it's the, the diminishing, the vanishing of truth, right? Can I just give you a, some advice? This just not, this isn't, we're not going to do church discipline if you don't do this. Well, let me just tell you, you can watch all those news media shows. Well, I don't care what channel, I don't care what, it's all lies. <laughs> I don't find truth in any of it. I don't care if it's the local news, whatever news. Yeah, maybe, well, even weathermen, right? They lie, right? Trust me, I'm a pilot. 
We understood they were trying to kill us. We never believed what they said. <laughs> Dave's sitting in the back going, amen, amen, right? Dave, did they try and kill us? Amen. So if you watch the news for the weather, don't even bother doing that, right? They're going to lie to you. Okay, but he's not talking about weather here. Let me read you a quote from Pfeiffer. He says this, Anyone who attempted to lead an honest life made himself a victim of ruthless cutthroats who dominated Israel, Israelite society. Amos agonized over this societal decay. Well, you want to know what Amos said? Okay, I'll read it for you. Amos chapter 5, verse 10 and verse 13. It's for, it says, They hate him who repu reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, at such a time, the one with insight keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Whoa. Is that a verse for today? It says, they abhor him who speaks with integrity. That is our culture. They abhor it. They don't want to hear it. They will shut you up any way they can. And they're going to come after the church. Okay, let me just give you a... I'm not a prophet, but they're going to, by the way, they're already doing it in Canada. They're going to come after the church. They're not going to let us continue to do this. I don't know how long, but they're going to come after us and say, you can't say that. That's hate speech. And, and what do most people do? Look what Amos says. Therefore, at such a time, the one with insight keeps silent. Well, we ain't going to do that in this church. We just got done with an elder meeting, and one thing we agreed upon, we ain't going to keep silent. We're not going to stop. I don't care what they do to us. If they come one day and say, you elders, shut up or you go to jail, we'll go to jail. We're not going to shut up. You cannot shut up. You understand? You cannot shut up. Israel could not save themselves. We see this in verses 15 and 16. God describes the situation, and it's hopeless. We see that only a servant can save them. So let's look at verses 15 through 20. Israel's need for a redeemer. So they just got done saying, look, they, they recognize their own iniquity, and they realize how helpless they are. What does Israel need? They need somebody to save them, and it ain't a person. Who is it? It's the servant. We've already seen four servant songs, right? We just did Isaiah 53. Let me read the verses, starting in verse 15. Then Yahweh saw, and it was evil in his eyes that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteous... By the way, who's the him here? The servant, who is? Jesus. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Hmm, that sounds familiar. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to what they deserve, so he will pay it in full. Wrath 
to his adversaries, what is deserved to his enemies, to the coastlines he will pay what they deserve. So they will fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh makes flee. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turned from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. See, by the way, when we read about all those sins about Israel, that described all of us in this room, right? We may not do all that, but that's in our hearts. That's every one of us before we had the Redeemer. We're going to talk about that in a minute. God describes Israel's situation of one as hopelessness according to their own resources. Throughout their history, they had some great leaders, guys like Moses, Joshua, Samson, David. But none of them could deliver Israel from their sin, could they? Only God with a mighty arm and saving righteousness to save his people from their ultimate destruction. Notice the way the chapter is put together. In the beginning, Israel says, you're not even listening. You can't listen. God says, no, I, I can listen just fine. It's because of your iniquity. Then he says, I'm going to give you detail about your iniquity. Then Israel looks at their situation and goes, we're hopeless. We're blind. We're in the darkness. And then Israel looks and says, yeah, it's our sin. But there's no hope for Israel on their own, just like there was no hope for you. There is no hope. They're going to go to hell. But then God says, what you need is a redeemer. You need the servant that has been talked about throughout the book of Isaiah. And who is the servant? Yeah, where do we see him? We see him at the very beginning of the book, right? One of my favorite... Things. Handel's Messiah, right? Unto us a son is given. Unto us a son is born. His name shall be called what? Emmanuel, God with us. He will rule the world. There he is. And he's revealed throughout the whole rest of the book. We see him again and again and again and again. And here he is again. Notice, only a servant can save them. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide a portion with the many. This is from Isaiah 12. I will divide a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. What did Israel just say about themselves? Look, we are transgressors. Well, there's the one who bore himself for you. Go to the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is about the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And who is the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus, who's our high priest. Their old rituals won't save them. Who will save them? Jesus will through the new covenant. That's what the book of Hebrews I got a big career. You can look at verses 1 through 4 on your own. 
But I want to look at John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Is David going to save Israel? Is Moses going to save Israel? Samson, Joshua, any of the other heroes you read about? No, none of them are going to save Israel. Except the servant, except the Redeemer. I want you to look at the Redeemer's motivation in verse 17. But he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Right? God is going to accomplish his redemptive purpose. Remember, what's the whole Bible about? If you describe the Bible in one phrase, what is it? It's God's redemptive plan and revealing himself from eternity past to eternity future. And God will accomplish his plan. Isaiah verse 11, 5. And righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Who's Isaiah 11, 5 talking about? Jesus. Isaiah 61, verse 2, coming attractions here, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That's what the servant is going to do. He's going to carry out his vengeance against those who shake their fist at him, and he's going to comfort those who mourn. When he says those who mourn, what are they mourning about? Their own sin. We just read that earlier. They mourned about their sin. Well, for those who mourn and repent over their sin, he's going to comfort them. Isaiah 63, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption has come. Notice the two hands. The day of vengeance and the day of redemption. See, you're going to be on one of those two hands. You're going to either experience the day of vengeance or you're going to know the day of redemption. That's it. It's binary. Pick one. Preferably, I don't want to be there for the day of his vengeance. I'm just giving you a hint. Notice his wrath. How he describes it in verses 18 and 19. Garments of vengeance, recompense to his enemies. The Lord, in the process of redeeming Israel, will execute judgment against the the word coastlands there. It's talking about the nations. And also against the wicked Israelites. God is going to judge all wickedness. Is he going to judge the nations? Yes, he is. The coastlands, that's what he's talking about. By the way, who are the nations? That would be like San Antonio, America. I have to tell you, we are not God. I hate to disappoint you. America is not God's covenant people. We're not. We're the nations. Right? And notice in verse 19, he says, they will fear. There will come a point where some of those will fear him and they will repent. And then I want you to notice in verse 20, the promised Redeemer to come. It says, a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those 
who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. Who's he going to come for? Those who turn from their transgression. What's a word that describes that? What does that mean? Trans, give me one word. Repent. Repentance. Right? Jesus' very first words in the gospel were repent. Repent. John's first words in his public ministry, his very first words were repent. Repent. We turn from our evil and we turn to Yahweh. We don't have him at our back anymore. We don't put him at our back. We don't shake our fist. We repent. He will come. Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, wait for Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. It is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There will come a day, we've already talked about it, we saw it in Isaiah 53, where all Israel will repent. Every, we saw that in Romans 11, right? Guys, remember, nod your heads. So I feel like you're paying attention. Okay. Right? All Israel will repent. And remember, we said they had to repent of one particular sin. And what was that one particular sin? Killing and rejecting the Messiah. And they will all repent of that. Every last one of them. And he will come, as it says here in Psalm, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's going to happen. Two-thirds of them will die in judgment. One-third will be redeemed. Hosea 13, verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. He will come. He will redeem them. Oh, by the way, Romans 11, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. Hum. Does that sound like our text? Paul says, look, one day the Redeemer is going to save how many of Israel? All Israel. What does that word all mean in the original? It means all. He's going to redeem all Israel. And then verse 21. Don't miss verse 21. Let me read it. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. Well, wait a minute. Does God already have a covenant with Israel? What do we call that covenant? It's called the Old Covenant, right? He made a covenant with them. By the way, was the Old Covenant conditional? Yes, it was. You walk by my statutes, blessing. You don't walk by my statutes, what? Cursing. Right? It's the Old Covenant. Keep my law. Better keep my law or judgment. How did they do? Not so hot. But listen to this. But as for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit which is upon you, 
and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your seed, nor from the mouth of your seed's seed, says Yahweh now and forever. He's talking about regenerated people here. And notice how long is this covenant going to be in effect? Yeah, it's, he's talking about your seed, your seed, seed. This is going to be an eternal thing. He is introducing for us the new covenant. He is introducing for us the new covenant. So let's fast forward 100 years. I want you to turn in your Bibles. Get your highlighters out. Okay? I want you to turn to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. By the way, when chronologically is Jeremiah in relation to Isaiah? Yeah, 70-ish years later, 100-ish years later. So Isaiah is before Jeremiah. So Isaiah in verse 21 is saying, look, there's, there's going to be a covenant here, and I will put my words in your mouth. I'm going to do it. Not you. Right? Well, what is this covenant? Well, he's going to define it later, about... Oh, 70, 80 years later, he's going to define it through the prophet Jeremiah. And here's what it's going to be. Listen to Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, right? Which means Jeremiah is saying this is a future event. Days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. Huh, that sounds just like verse 21 of Isaiah 59. And on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not again teach, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, No, Yahweh. Well, why won't they teach that? For they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Now, in this passage, how much do you see Israel doing anything? Zip. Nada. Zero. Israel, God says, I am going to do this. I'm going to cut a new covenant. And what do we call it when he says, I'm going to cut a new covenant? What do we call that? We call it the new covenant. Pretty inventive, huh? Here's how Ezekiel describes it. In Ezekiel 36, he's talking about the same covenant. Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your unrighteousness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and, I, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and you will be careful to do my judgments. What is that? That's the new covenant. He says, look, notice some things about it. Number one, I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm going to, put, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to sprinkle water on you, and you will be clean. Then he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. In fact, I'm going to take your heart of stone. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. You go to Titus 3, 5, it talks about the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. What is happening when the Holy Spirit does that in you? God is taking a heart of stone, and he's replacing it with a heart of flesh. That's what the Spirit does the moment you're saved. The moment you got saved, the Holy Spirit took a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And he says, not only that, I'm going to put a new spirit within you. What's that? The Holy Spirit. See, it's not going to be a temporary thing. I am going to permanently give you my Holy Spirit. Huh. Well, he's talking in both of these passages to who? Israel. So what about us? You've heard this before. You should all know this. Get out your Bibles. Let's go to Luke 22. Get your highlighters out. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is the, my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, after they had eaten, saying, now listen to this, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There it is. What is it? What does the blood of Jesus Christ give you? The new covenant. See, God says, one day, Israel, I'm going to take every last one of you and I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But in the meantime, during the period or what Paul says in Romans is the time of the Gentiles, Jesus says, hey, church, guess what? This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to bear all your sin on the cross so that the new covenant will be applied to you. In other words, your sins will be forgiven. Your heart of stone will be replaced with a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you, and he will live in you forever. That's what he's saying. See, that's the hope for Israel. Notice the progression in the passage. In the end, they're desperate, they're blind, they're groping, they're hopeless. They realize they're in sin, and there's nothing they're going to do about it. And then God says, wait a minute, I'm going to give you a redeemer. Right? God's... God's plan for the redemption of man. I'm going to give you a redeemer. And that redeemer is going to redeem you, Israel. Right? Look at verse 21. Um, I'm sorry, verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn, those who repent, right, he's going to apply a new covenant to them. And by the way, that's exactly what he did with you. So let's briefly talk about some implications. Number one, you need to understand that your sin separates us and interferes with our fellowship with God. I already read Psalm 32. David said, look, I, when I was silent, my bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long. Your hand is heavy on me. My vitality was drained. Why? Because I didn't repent of my sin. I didn't confess and repent. God is going to discipline David because he's not repenting. 
So when we sin, what must we do? We confess and repent. We confess. Right? 1 John 1.9. Confess your sins. 1 John 1.9 is written, by the way, to who? Believers. Right? One of the things that signifies maturity in a believer is the time from their sin to repentance, their time from sin to confession to God gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Right? The moment you sin, you should catch yourself and go, Father, forgive me. I confess my sin. I repent. Right? It should be instant. Almost instant. Right? And by the way, if you don't believe it affects you, listen to what Peter says to husbands in 1 Peter 3.7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Why should you do that? Because if you don't do that, if you sin, what will happen? Your prayers will not be hindered. See, if I'm in sin, if I sin against my wife, that hinders my prayers. How? I don't know. But it does. That's what the text says. He says, hey, now you may talk about whether she gets saved or not. There's hope. But the point is, it impacts my fellowship with the Father. And then we must walk in the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What was Israel's groaning about? We're in darkness, right? Man, we're in darkness, and we're not going to get out of it, and it's just we're like blind men. And Jesus says, well, I'm the answer to that. I am the light. I am the light. John 12, he says, A little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness does not overtake you. And, and he says in verse 5 of 1 John, I mean John 1, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overtake it. You know, Larray and I went to a thing, uh, a salt mine in Bavaria. And you go down into the salt mine, you're way underground. And they say, hey, if you got any electric things or whatever, turn them off. And then they turned off all the lights. Absolute, utter darkness. You could put your hand right here and not see it. No light. None. It's one of the few places you can go and there's no light. It's scary a little bit. I mean, really, you're like, whoa, do I still have a hand? Is it there? You shake it just to make sure. And then he puts on a little itty-bitty pen light, and guess what? It overtook all the darkness. Darkness will never overtake light. Light will always overtake darkness. You can't add more darkness to drown out that light. That light took out the darkness, even a little bit. Right? And by the way, let me just add one last point. Israel needed a Redeemer. We need a Redeemer. We need the same Redeemer Israel needed. Right? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the richness of this passage. Lord, I thank you for the detail. And I thank you that we were once like Israel in darkness, groping, overcome by our own iniquity. But the Redeemer came to us
and took our heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh. And you put your words within us and you gave us your spirit and we have life. We walk in the light and not in the darkness. Jesus, we're going to go worship you in just a little bit. I pray our worship would be pleasing to you. Lord, that we would worship in sincerity and humility and that you would get all the glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.